It was an exciting day for the young naval ensign as he made his first voyage on that ship across the seas. He completed his first cruise and he was about to demonstrate his own ability in controlling the ship outside of the channel, out into the open seas and back to the United States. And so he shot out orders and at breakneck speed the decks were buzzing with men performing the orders that the young ensign had given. And soon the ship had turned around and it was outside of the bay and outside of the channel and cruising out toward the open seas. He had set a record in getting a destroyer going that quickly. A young officer came up to him with a message from the captain, which he expected. After all, he had done such a good job. But he was a little surprised to find out that it was a radio message from the captain that read, My personal congratulations, you have completed the exercise according to the book and at amazing speed. In your haste, however, you overlooked one of the unwritten rules. Make sure the captain is aboard before getting underway. (laughs) Well, that's how a lot of people live their lives. They have all of the procedures of living down pat, but they forget to ask the captain aboard their lives. They forget to ask God to come and be in control. And God is left out of the picture so often. The Bible speaks of those who are always learning, but are never coming to the knowledge of the truth. You can know all of the right facts, but unless you have the application of those facts, which is wisdom, it is useless. There is a difference between intelligence and wisdom. History is filled with people who are brilliant enough, smart enough to be rich and famous or to make a good living, but were not wise enough to be satisfied because of the choices they made. We live in uh, what has been called the information age. In fact, I was reading a magazine the other day that called last year the year of the Internet, talking about how information is available to us more than ever before. And our problem is not information. In fact, we are glutted with information. It is how to apply that information correctly to our daily living. It was estimated that if you took the accumulation of knowledge from the beginning of history to the year 1845 and represented it by one inch thick, that the knowledge gained from that year of 1845 to 1945 would be three inches thick. And the knowledge acquired from 1945 to just 1975 would be uh, the height of the Washington Monument. And since then we have more than doubled in information. I was reading a book by Isaac Asimov the other day, and I found something interesting. He said, based at the rate at which knowledge is growing, it can be speculated that by the time today's child reaches 50 years of age, 97% of everything known in the world will have been learned since his birth. That is astonishing. It's hard for me to even figure that one out. But that's the rate at which knowledge is growing. And of course we have now email and the internet and you can get just about anything you want over this worldwide web of computers that are networked together. 
And if you want to send mail, you can push enter button after you've composed it, and it's out there somewhere in cyberspace, and the party to whom you have written can take it any time, no matter where they're at, as long as they're online. It took five months for Queen Isabella to get news of the voyage of Columbus. It took two weeks for Europe to find out that Lincoln was assassinated. And now we can watch news as it is happening. As you could see, the Gulf War, as the bombs were going off over in the Middle East, you could see that from your living room as those things were happening. Unfortunately, with the increase in technology and the increase in knowledge, there is not a corresponding increase in wisdom. And so I decided that we would take on Proverbs, which is a book of wisdom. It is God's wisdom. And I've called the series Wise Up because it's how to have a wise life and apply God's wisdom to virtually every area of your life in a practical way. Now, we're not going to take it verse by verse, that is, chapter 1, verse 1, and then keep going all the way through the book. What we're going to do is attack it, by and large, topically, because so many of the verses are scattered as pithy little sayings throughout the book. And we're going to look at some of the great themes of Proverbs, like temptation and how to handle it, Uh, the foolish man versus the wise man, friendship, the power of words, the struggle against sexual temptation, the virtuous woman, and things like that. But let's read the first six verses of chapter 1, and then also verse 7, and we'll look at the meaning of wisdom as we start this morning. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. To understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The words wise and wisdom occur about 125 times or better in this book alone. Because that's the theme of this book, wisdom, how to acquire it, how to attain God's wisdom for decisions and activities of daily life. Now, just for kicks this week, I opened up a Webster's Dictionary to find out the Webster's definition of wisdom, and then I thought, oh, I'll compare that to some other definitions, like the Bibles. A Webster, in a recent edition, gave as its first definition of wisdom accumulated philosophic or scientific learning, i.e., knowledge. Accumulated scientific or philosophic learning. And they equated as a first primary definition, knowledge with wisdom. The ancient Greeks were close to that definition. And of course, the ancient Greeks reveled in wisdom. Paul said, the Greeks seek after wisdom. And they did. Paul the Apostle went to Athens. And he listened to the philosophers. And by and large, that's what wisdom was to the Greeks. Spinning endless ideas and philosophizing over life. And it had no real relationship to real practical living. As Paul was in Athens, he noted 
that the philosophers of Athens had come together, get this, to either tell or hear of some new thing. That was it. That was their wisdom. Just what new do you have to share with me? Let's spin that tale to its extreme. In fact, Socrates, one of the Greek philosophers, said, By all means, get married. If you get a good wife, you will become happy. If you get a bad one, you will become a philosopher. (laughs) Now, the Bible has an altogether different meaning of wisdom. From the Bible's point of view, wisdom must always begin with God, not with human instruction, not with gaining learning in an institution, but always with God. Both wisdom and knowledge. Verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In chapter 9, almost the same verse, but it says the beginning of wisdom is also the fear of the Lord. So wisdom is not accumulated knowledge. Wisdom is not scientific learning necessarily. Wisdom is not the ability to philosophize a stream of thought. Wisdom is much more than good advice or successful planning. The beginning of wisdom begins with God. In fact, David said, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So a person who is smart and would seem wise from a worldly perspective, without God, he who denies that is a fool. There's no wisdom at all. The Hebrew word that is mentioned in uh, these verses for wise and wisdom is the word chokmah, or as they would say it, chokmah. That's wisdom. You will be interested to know exactly what it means. It means literally to have a skill to work. To have a skill to work or to have an expertise. It is a word that the Greeks used to describe a skilled craftsman, a skilled artist, a skilled administrator or counselor, sailor or singer. It is a word that is used in Exodus to describe the builders of the tabernacle. God said, see, I have put a spirit of wisdom in them that they might create artistic works and build this tabernacle for my name. So wisdom is not something theoretical. It's very practical. It has to do with practical, everyday aspects of life. Now, in Proverbs, the context of wisdom is more than just having a skill to do a job. You might say it means how to live skillfully. Or how to be an expert at godly living. That's the idea. How to be an expert, because it begins with God, to live skillfully, to live well, to make the right kind of choices in life. A bachelor's degree does not make you a wise person. A master's or doctorate does not make you a wise person. It's not your IQ or your score on your SAT test. It begins with God, and it's the wisdom to have insight into a situation, to know what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. And we'll get much evidence of this as we go on. Let's illustrate that, though. Let's say you go to work, or you get home, or you go somewhere and you get yelled at. Your boss yells at you at work. How do you respond to that? Your wife or your husband yells at you at home. You go to the store, and the person in back of you thinks you're taking too long in line, and they start yelling at you. How do you respond? A... Deck them upside the head? That's not a good choice. B. Verbally attack them back to intimidate them? Not a good choice. Or take the wisdom of Proverbs. The skill to live well. 
and apply its wisdom. Proverbs 15.1 says, A soft answer will turn away wrath, but harsh words will stir up anger. Let's take another example. Let's say somebody makes a sexual advance toward you. You have several options. You can play with that and go, Oh, wow, an affair would be so, well, maybe tantalizing, maybe, maybe fulfilling. You have all sorts of options. But you read the book of Proverbs, especially chapters 5 and 6, and you see that that kind of a choice is destructive physically, emotionally, and spiritually to you and to the other person, as well as your own family. It can absolutely destroy your life. And so you apply God's wisdom to it. Now, wisdom won't enable you to know everything, but you'll know what to avoid. Like the young man who wanted to become a pilot on the Mississippi River on those big steamships years ago and was interviewed, the interviewer looked at this young strap of a kid and thought, he doesn't know much. And he asked him, do you know where the rocks are on the river? Thinking, this guy doesn't know the dangerous spots. And the kid said, no, I don't know where all the rocks are, but I know where they ain't. He got the job. You just got to know what to avoid. Let's now look at verse 1 at the maxims of wisdom. We've seen what the meaning is. The second word is Proverbs. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. And then in verse 6, the same word. To understand a proverb and an enigma. The words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord and so forth. Now Solomon was quite a guy. God gave him great wisdom. And he was a prolific writer and builder. Scripture says he wrote or he spoke 3,000 proverbs, most of which are not included in this book. Some are. And he wrote 1,005 songs, besides being quite a builder. The word proverb that is used in verse 1 and then again in verse 6 uh, comes from a Latin word, proverbium. And it's composed of two words, pro, which means instead of, and verba, which means words. And that's the meaning of a proverb. It is a short saying instead of lots of words to get a point across. We would call it a maxim or an aphorism or an epigram. It's a short, terse little saying that speaks volumes. And the more you meditate on it and chew it, it yields its fruit. That's the meaning of it. The Spanish novelist Cervantes said, A proverb is a short saying based on long experience. Now, Proverbs found their home in the East, in places like Israel and in Babylon and in Persia and in Egypt. There were wise men, wise guys that covered the landscape, and they gave their sayings. And I think every culture, every generation has its little sayings, its maxims. We have ours in our own culture. Things like, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Or, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Or, Look before you leap. Another one is, don't make a mountain out of a molehill. And of course you've heard, too many cooks spoil the broth. Those are sayings of a culture. This is a book filled with sayings inspired by God. They're not just clever sayings based upon experience or study. But these are God's words. God gave Solomon the wisdom. It says in 1 Kings chapter 3. So it's not just good advice. These are sayings that form God's advice. You might look at it as distilled truth or truth in concentrated form. 
honed, polished, trimmed to make a maximum impact. God's advice. Now, the reason we can live wisely is because, like the book of Proverbs, God has given us His Word. And so we have an edge. We have a head start on anyone else who would claim wisdom. God has revealed to us His truth. We have His words. Thus, we have an edge because we have expert truth on how to live wisely and live well. Now, we must never forget that. We must never forget that when we approach God and we approach this book, that God is the expert. Lest we come to Him and start offering words of advice to God. Have you ever done that? Yes, you have. There have been times where you thought, God, I don't know if this was the right choice you just made here. Let me counsel you a little bit in this area. I think you should have, and you can fill in the blank. But God is the expert. That's why we can live wisely, because it's His wisdom. Billy Burke was a famous actress in Hollywood years ago. And as Billy was on a transatlantic ship cruise, she noticed in her uh, area where she was sitting for breakfast one morning a man that obviously was suffering from a cold. And so she went over to him and said, Are you uncomfortable, sir? And he nodded his head yes. She said, I'll tell you just what you must do. Go to your stateroom, drink lots of orange juice, take two aspirin, get under the covers and smother yourself and sweat out that cold. Believe me, I know what I'm talking about. I'm Billy Burke, the Hollywood actress. And then he introduced himself. He said, I'm Dr. Mayo of the Mayo Clinic. Oops. Imagine giving medical advice as a Hollywood actress to the man who started the Mayo Clinic. But we can do that with God sometimes, but we have to approach it with reverence. He's the expert. These are maxims that form God's advice. Now, why did God use these Proverbs in this book to communicate wisdom? Why did He set it out in this form with these poetic nuggets? Well, these are the kind of Scripture verses that are easily committed to memory. You can read them and say, man, that sinks in. They're like truth bombs that explode in your brain. They make a maximum impact upon the walls of your memory. You never forget them. You go over them a couple times and they stick well because of the way they're easily put. Years ago, I took a class for memory, how to improve your memory, and uh, because I have such a poor one. And uh, they were giving us advice on how to work your mind. and, And the first class was how to remember people's names. And he said, now the secret is to be creative with people. As you look at them, you be imaginative with what you see when you notice them. And he said, uh, the more outlandish, the better. Pick some characteristic and look at them in a different way, and then you'll remember their name. He said, for an example, and he brought a guy up, his name was Craig. And Craig had silver hair. And so he said, look at Craig and imagine you see a keg for his head. And you know what? To this day, if I saw him, I'd say, Craig! I'll never forget that. Of course, unless he's used like Grecian formula or something, then it's all over. But other than that, I could remember him. Then he brought up a girl named Debbie, and Debbie had an interesting characteristic of a little beauty mark on her cheek. And so he said, picture a bee that has just landed on Debbie. And I looked at her, I'll never forget Debbie's name. Well, the book of Proverbs is put in this form, I think, for that reason, for the aid of our memory. 
you have short sayings that express long truths and long experience, but they're put in such a way that you can hang them like pictures in your mind. They're like portraits of truth. And the longer you spend in this book, you recognize those portraits. You recognize the sluggard, the foolish man, the person who's foolish sexually. You recognize the wise person, the virtuous woman, the hard, diligent worker. They become very familiar to you. And so they're simple and they're subtle and they stick in your brain. One of the keys of this book is its simplicity. Very simple truths that anybody can grasp. And I think that any communicator should take a clue from this book. It's put very simply so that the common person could understand. Somebody from this uh, church handed me a sheet of paper and they were all the sayings in our culture if they were rewritten by a scholar. Sayings like, scintillate, scintillate, asteroid minific. You know it better as twinkle, twinkle, little star. (laughs) Or how about this one? Members of avian species of identical plumage congregate. Birds of a feather flock together. Let's see if you recognize this one. Surveillance should preclude saltation. Look before you leap. You'll get this one. Male cadavers are incapable of yielding any testimony. Dead men tell no tales. I like it better the easy way, don't you? Jesus said, feed my sheep, not my giraffes. Put the food on the lowest shelf. Well, the book of Proverbs does that. It's easy to understand it. Look at verse 2. Verses 2 and 3 is a summary statement as to why this book was written. These Proverbs were given. To know wisdom and instruction. To perceive or literally to get insight into the words of understanding. To receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. So these Proverbs give you insight into life. You will acquire a disciplined skill in right living and in making decisions. Now personally, I like to read a chapter a day. There's 31 Proverbs. There's usually around 30, 31 days in a month. If you do it according to the day of the month and apply that to the proverb, and if it's the fifth day of the month, you read Proverbs 5. So every month you'll read through that book. It can be a powerful and impacting thing. I like to look at it as medicine or vitamins. If all you ate were vitamins, it would be an imbalanced meal. If all you read were the book of Proverbs, it would be an imbalanced spiritual diet. You need all the rest of the scripture, but when I read Proverbs, it's like high dosage vitamins. It's like I read it and go, whoa, yeah, there's something that just sticks and I need for that day. So it's expert truth, it's simple truth, and we notice it's also beautiful truth. It's set out in poetry. It's poetic. There are stanzas to it. Now, just a brief word about Hebrew poetry. They don't rhyme words in Israel. Having a go, they don't care about that. What they would rather do is rhyme thoughts together, not words together. The meter is different. The meter comes in the thinking, not in the sound. And so you have parallel thoughts, Hebrew parallelism. You'll have a thought and then another thought that amplifies the previous thought. That's called synthetic parallelism. And you might have another thought and a contrasting thought underneath it. 
That's antithetic parallelism. You don't have to remember that to get into heaven. Just thought I'd share that. It's different the way it's set out, but it's still poetry and it's very, very beautiful. And it's done that way because when you read it in this fashion, again, it sinks in. So much of Proverbs is repetitive. You'll have a saying and then an amplification of that and then maybe four or five other amplifications of the first thought. So by the time you're done with it, you go, I get it. It's a good teaching tool, repetition. Every good teacher will repeat himself to get the point across. Your mind is capable of retaining 25% of what you hear if it's told to you twice. It has to be reinforced. My father was good at getting, giving advice. He would sit us down and depending on what we had done or what we were planning, he would have a spiel. And by the time I was a teenager, I had memorized all of the speeches. He would sit me down and he would ask me a question. Then he would start talking and if he stopped, I could have finished it for him. Of course, I didn't do that because that would be rude. I just sat and listened, of course, not always with a smile on my face. But I knew what he was going to say. But I never forgot it because he repeated it so often. We find that in the book of Proverbs. And again, it is down to earth. It's where the rubber meets the road. You're going to find in this book reference to farming, markers of your boundaries, the marketplace. You're going to see comparisons between a lazy man and a diligent man as you make those decisions in life. All goes to show that God is actively concerned with everything you do. That's such a liberating truth. God is interested in you, not just when you open your Bible Sunday morning in church. It's not like God goes, oh, now I'm really interested in you, and now I've got words of wisdom to share with you. God wants to be a part of your business life, a part of your home life, a part of your dating life, a part of your fun life, your leisure time. It was such a liberating truth to me when I realized that if I was out sitting on a surfboard in the Pacific Ocean or in church with my Bible open, that God wanted to draw near and be a part of my experience. It liberated me. It was awesome. Let's move on in verse 4 now to the mark of wisdom. The mark of wisdom. And I would say it's simply spiritual growth. Verse 4, to give prudence to the simple... To the young man, knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. You have the simple mentioned in one verse, and you have the wise mentioned in another verse. And everything from the simple to the wise, the young to the old, and every life experience, every person fits in that category somewhere. The simple means the naive. It's not speaking about an imbecile. It's not speaking about somebody who's hardened his heart against God's truth. It's speaking about a young person. That's what it says in verse 4, the second phrase, to the young man, knowledge and discretion. It's a person who is young in life and hasn't had a lot of life experiences yet and needs wisdom. But then the next verse mentions the wise person. A wise man will hear and increase in learning. In other words, every person at any level needs to keep growing. I've noticed something about mature, impacting, dynamic Christians. They never plateau. 
They never say, by God's grace, I've attained. No, it's always by, I want to learn more. I want to apply more. I need to keep growing. That's the idea of wisdom here. It's characteristic of anyone who is great. The Talmud says, he who adds not to his learning diminishes it. In this congregation right now, there are the simple and the wise. Those who are new believers and are growing and acquiring. And then there's those who are the stalwart, already grown-up believers in faith. It's sort of like what Jesus said to Peter after he rose from the dead. And he said, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I do love you. Well, then, Peter, feed my sheep. Okay. Then he said, Peter, do you love me? Yeah, Lord, I love you. Then feed my lambs. Sheep and lambs are mentioned. And every pastor of any congregation must realize at any given time there are sheep and there are lambs. There are older stalwart believers and there are young sheep. And so a message might be delivered and the older sheep might think, this is lamb stuff. I've heard this before. I have been there. I have done that. But sitting next to that older sheep might be a tender little lamb who goes, Man, that's heavy. That's tough. Now tell me more. Explain that more. And so Paul in Romans 15 said, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. There's different stages of growth. And the mark of wisdom is that at any given stage, you say, I need more. I want more. I want to grow more. Tell it to me again. I want it to sink into my life. By the way, folks, by mature Christian, we don't mean people who know more, but people who do more with what they already know. It's not, well, I've learned another factoid for my biblical file. I'm a little bit smarter intellectually. I have a little more facts down than other people. No, it's what do you do with what you know is the cure or the idea of maturity. And so many people say, but I want the meat of the word. Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of God. That's where the meat is. Obey what you already know. It would be great if... The older you got, the wiser you got. Generally, that happens. But age and wisdom, in the biblical sense, are not always directly proportional. You've met people who are young Christians, relatively young people, yet there is such a wisdom that exudes from them. Then you've met older people. And they say, well, I've been a Christian all my life, but you'd never know it. Even Charles Spurgeon Noticed in his own church, he said, In the church of God there are children who are 70 years old. Yes, little children displaying all of the infirmities of declining years. One would like to say of a man of 80, one would not like to say of an 80-year-old man that he has scarcely cut his wisdom teeth, and yet there are such. On the other hand, there are fathers in the church, wise, stable, instructed, who are comparatively young men. The Lord can cause His people to grow rapidly and to far outstrip their years. You say, well, what's the secret to it? Desire. There's no magical device that God gives you and all of a sudden, oh, now I'm mature. It comes from your desire, your cooperation. You can grow as much as you want. Second Peter chapter 1. Peter says, 
God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. Therefore, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. And if these things are in you and abound, you will never be unfruitful in your walk. So you can grow as much as you want. Finally, and we'll close with this, the misplacement of wisdom. I want you to look once again at verse 1, the misplacement of wisdom. The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, the king of Israel. Now I read that verse and I say, yeah, the son of David, the king of Israel, what happened? What happened to you, Solomon? You're the son of David. You were the king of Israel, yet you died a fool. You had the greatest wisdom to write, but in your own personal life you never regarded it. Solomon wrote some of the most awesome truths ever to fall upon the ears of man. Listen to what the scripture says in 1 Kings chapter 4. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the East and greater than the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, and his fame spread to all of the surrounding nations. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom, sent by all the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Solomon rebuilt the temple. Solomon built his own palace. He widened the streets in Jerusalem. He spread the borders of Israel out further than they'd ever been before. He wrote songs, he wrote Proverbs, and he was a great man of prayer. Psalm 72 is written by Solomon at the peak of Israel's glory. 1 Kings chapter 5, as he dedicates the temple to God, it's a beautiful, heartfelt prayer. And yet, though he began with wisdom, he died as a fool. You say, but how is that possible? How could a king of such wisdom, the son of David, the king of Israel. How could that happen to him? Well, turn with me over to 1 Kings chapter 11, and we'll close with this this morning. 1 Kings chapter 11. If it's hard to find, just find 2 Kings. Go back one book. And remember what we just read. He was a man of wisdom, but he was also a man of wealth and women and power. And those things took precedence over the wisdom God gave him. Verse 1 of chapter 11 of 1 Kings, But King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh, women of the Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, You shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. That was an active home. For it was so when Solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. 
For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, that would be the Mount of Olives, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Here's a man who was gifted intellectually, but he was weak ethically. His mind and his morals didn't match. They were different from one another. They were not on the same level. He mixed the worship of God with the worship of others. Instead of saying, no, this is the true God, of, the God of Israel, there's only one. He said, well, let's be open to other possibilities. There are many roads. And his heart was turned away from God. You might say that Solomon was self-consumed. Self-consumed. Life revolved around Solomon eventually, rather than God. And he was majoring and trying to find out the meaning of life as you read the book of Ecclesiastes. He said, oh, it's all vanity, because at that point in his life, it all revolved around him. That's a miserable way to live, and a heart can be turned away from God. Oh, he was religious, but his religion was official only. It was not personal. He didn't even obey the precepts that he wrote. I found an article from the Associated Press from 1990, September 10th, San Jose, California, Luke Goodrich was burning garbage out back of his home, and that is against the law. But worse, while Luke was burning this garbage, the fire got away from him. It spread over a hundred acres. It took six helicopters and 400 firefighters to put it out. Luke Goodrich is the captain of the San Jose Fire Department. Of all guys, that should not have happened to. It was Luke Goodrich. Of all people, what happened to Solomon, it should not have happened. With others you could understand, but you read Proverbs as God spoke to him and through him. And yet he died a fool in hypocrisy. Let me apply that personally. I am a fool if by God's grace I do not live what I teach. And you are a fool if you come week after week and say amen to it. And by God's grace don't live what is taught. God's truth is precious. It can become intoxicating mentally. So it should be applied personally. Otherwise, we become exactly what James said is possible. To the man who is a hearer of the word, but not a doer only, he becomes what? Deceived, James said. Deceived. Hearing the word, but not doing it. Years ago... A wealthy Chinese businessman man visited America and was shown a microscope. He'd never seen one. And he looked through it and he saw just how intricate things like flowers, crystals could become under that powerful lens. It was a whole new world. He was so fascinated, he wanted one. And so he purchased one and had it shipped back to China. When he got home one evening, he decided that he would examine familiar things like food. And so he put his rice underneath the microscope. And as he looked closely, he saw something he never imagined. 
tiny little things crawling around on that piece of rice. At the microscopic level, those little organisms that are moving around. And he was so appalled. This was his staple diet. What's the solution? His solution? He destroyed the microscope. (laughs) The instrument that revealed truth, he got rid of. How like us when we say, this book hurts when it speaks to me. I'll just rationalize my behavior. I'll point it towards somebody else's direction. But the best place to be is when it reveals the heart to humble ourselves at that moment. That's living wisely and living well. To see changes come by applying practical wisdom to our lives. So, Father, we pray that as we hear the word, we would then do the word, lest we become, what a sad state to think about, deceived people. And so, Father, I pray that we would treat very carefully the wisdom of God and have the edge in this world by living wisely, living well, committing ourselves to the person of Jesus Christ in whom, Paul said, is found all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then by applying our lives to the principles of wisdom, which is your word, that it would be underlined in our feet and not just by pencils in a book, that we would live what we read. Help us by your grace to do that. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.